All right, well, good to see you today. How's everybody doing? Good, good. You know what I love about what God's doing at Influence Church? I was thinking about the other day. I realized it's not that far away that we have to pay our taxes again. Have you thought about that? And I got to thinking about what a blessing it is to be at Influence Church because we lease back, uh, we're landlords to the United States government. And they pay one-third of our mortgage. I mean, think about that. They're paying one-third of our mortgage, and they're getting like one-sixteenth of the space. I love the government. I love what they do for us. What other country would do that? Anyway, it's such a real blessing to see what God has done. And, and you know, as I began to think about this message for this week, we're in this series called The Coming Revival. And what we want in your life, what we want in all of our lives, is for us to experience a fresh and an ever-deepening touch from God. That you are aware of his presence, you live in his power, you're led by his spirit, you really understand deeper and deeper what it means to walk with Almighty God. And as I thought about this message on anointed for battle, I realized that that God puts his power on us, God gives us his presence when there is a purpose. When there's some reason for that, God does not give us gifts. He does not give us his presence or his power just for us to enjoy it, but for battle. In the story of David and Goliath, a familiar story to everyone, I'm sure, on one level or another, but there are some intricacies that go into this story, and I'm going to to not spend as much time on the Goliath, the killing of Goliath, as I am on what exactly was going on in David. Because what was going on in David, we want to go on in you, in me. We want to experience that spirit of God in a powerful way. And there are some principles of victory that we find in this story. Let me give you just a few as we begin to look at this passage. The first one is this. We need to honor God with uncommon faith. When your faith feels common, When you can explain what's happening by your ability, by your strength, by your connections, by your education, by your background, by whatever means you can outside of God, your faith may not be uncommon. You want to be able to move into that sphere of saying, if God does this, I know it's God. I expect God to do this. I'm confident God's going to do that. You start moving in to that uncommon kind of faith that all of us want to experience, and hopefully all of us are experiencing, at least from time to time. The second one is this, position yourself for a miracle. You see, if you don't align yourself up with what God is doing, you're not really positioning yourself saying, God, I want to get in the right place for you to do something. When you get into the place of prayer, you're positioning yourself for a miracle. When you get into, your, into a position where you say, it's either God or nothing, you've positioned yourself for a miracle. You're calling on heaven to come to earth. You're calling for transformation to happen that cannot be explained by natural or earthly means. The other thing is you want to accept the challenges that come against you as opportunities. You see, challenges really, sometimes we look at them as saying setbacks or difficulties or problems. But have you ever stopped to think how important it is to have a challenge? 
How much a giant in your life like Goliath changes you and makes you better. In fact, have you ever noticed in Scripture how God seems to arrange problems for his people so that they understand uncommon faith? Look at Noah. Noah's life was going well until God said, build an ark. Moses thought things were well until he got run out of Egypt, running for his life, and then God says, no, I want you to go back and face your giant, the Pharaoh. I want you to deliver people out. Think about your own life. What are the giants in your life right now? What are the difficulties? What are the challenges in your life? Did you ever think that maybe God allowed those or God arranged those? Because until you take the challenge, until you face the giants of life, you never go to the next level. You never go to the next season in your life. There's something about difficulty that makes us better. The teacher I remember most is not the nicest teacher. The teacher I remember most was the one that challenged me the most, that pushed me the most, that made life difficult for me. Those are the stories I tell. I never tell stories about Mrs. Page. She was the nicest kindergarten teacher in the world. I don't have any stories. She let me do whatever I want. It was a wonderful experience for a kid, but I don't have great stories. But I've got a whole list of other teachers that made my life miserable, and of course, I was just a model child. I can't understand why they would make my life difficult. I think I only went through half of fifth grade. The other half was at the principal's office or sitting in the hallway. Miss Eilenfeld did not like me. I thought she was hot. But she didn't like me. I don't know if she was good looking or not, but to a fifth grade boy, she looked pretty good. And I was cutting up to get her attention. I don't know what I was thinking. Was she going to ask me out for a date? In those days, they didn't do that. They do that now, but not then. (laughs) Oh, don't give me that. You read the newspaper. You watch the news. 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 7. Here is the prophet Samuel. He goes and he's going to find the next king of Israel. He's going to anoint him king. And anointing means to to put some, typically oil on someone to, to single them out for the presence of God or for a purpose of God. Saul had failed in his duties and now all of a sudden, here goes Samuel to Jesse. And Jesse has eight sons. He brings seven of them to Samuel the prophet. Samuel goes through this process and the God says, no, that's not him, that's not him, that's not him. And then he says, do you have another son? But in the context of all of that, in verse seven it says, for the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on your heart. You see, it doesn't matter what, how you see yourself in the mirror. Realize that God sees something much richer, much deeper, much better than you will ever see. You can have the false kind of confidence called proud, and you look at yourself and think you're something, but deep down you know what's really going on. But you see, with God, when he looks at you, he sees you with all your potential. He sees all the dreams that you have. He seems all the love you have and all the compassion you have, and he says, I want to bring all the best out in you, and I want to anoint you to do what you're called to do. Now, if we drop down a few verses to verse 12 and 13, it says, as he comes to 
now Jesse. He says, now where's your, where's your, you have another son? Yes, well, where is he? He's out watching a few sheep. What could you bring him here? And here comes little David, probably about 16 years old, maybe 17. He's freckle-faced, got red hair. He's been keeping sheep. Nobody likes him in the family, apparently. He's the eighth son. Eight in the Bible is a number of new beginnings. It should be a signal already to Samuel. And when Samuel sees him, these words come from the Lord in verse 12. The Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. You notice that anointing came, that presence of God came, and it says the spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. Little did David know right then what was going to unfold next. And that would be that battle. He would face that giant named Goliath. I want you to see this first truth. That is that the anointing is activated in battle. When you start to see what happens in David's life, you see him go to a whole new level when the battle begins. And here's Israel and they're all gathered around and here's this giant named Goliath who stands probably about six feet or, or ten feet tall and here he is a mighty man of valor. Here he is a strong man and all of a sudden uh, they, he's taunting the armies of Israel. He said, hey, if you guys are so powerful, if you're so great, send me a man and we'll do battle. You see, it was a picture it was just a forerunning picture of what was going to happen on Calvary when one came, uh, Jesus came, that one man, and he would face another single person, and that is Satan, and they would do battle on the battlefield of eternity. Send me a man. God said, fine, Satan, I'll send you a man. I'll send you David first, and he'll kill Goliath. Then I'll send you Jesus, and he will take care of Satan himself. And that's the operation that God is working on. And then notice David says, what's going on here? He sees all of Israel run back in fear for 40 days. They're afraid. He doesn't understand it. It says in verse, uh, seven, uh, chapter 17 to verse 26, then David spoke to the men who stood by him, saying, what shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach of Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the Most High God? And I'm sure everybody standing around said, who's that? You're just a stupid little shepherd boy. What are you doing here? And David begins to recount how he had conquered the lion, how he'd conquered the bear, how God had been with him and that, that God would be with him in this situation. He says, but tell me, is there, is there something that I need to understand about this situation? You know, I love, uh, I love movies. That's why we're in a movie theater, right? There's a movie from 1960 called Spartacus. The leading actor was Kirk Douglas. When we were in New Jersey, we got to go on a movie set with Kirk and Douglas and Douglas's son and uh, got to meet him, and uh, I was just shocked by how little he was. I expected him to be about seven feet tall, and he was about two foot four. <laughs> Nicest guy in the world, but uh, my mind went back to Spartacus, and I thought about this movie Spartacus because there's a scene, it's a story about a slave who leads a rebellion really against Rome. And he becomes the hero and the people's favorite. 
Rome doesn't quite know what to do with him. They've got him cornered in a valley. And there, here comes the, the Roman general, and he rides up and he says, Give me the man or the body who called himself Spartacus, and you will all have mercy. And Kirk Douglas is sitting there, and he's Spartacus, and he knows what's going on, and so he starts to stand up and says, I am, and the minute he stands up, Tony Curtis is standing next to him and goes, I am Spartacus. And then one by one, all the men stand up and they say, I am Spartacus. Let's watch the clip from that movie. I bring a message from your master, Marcus Licinius Crassus, commander of Italy. By command of his most merciful excellency, your lives are to be spared. Slaves you were, and slaves you remain. But the terrible penalty of crucifixion has been set aside on the single condition that you identify the body or the living person of the slave called Spartacus. I'm Spartacus! I'm Spartacus! I'm Spartacus. I'm Spartacus. I'm Spartacus. I love that scene because the Roman general doesn't know what to do. I have a buddy that's an editor with the New York Times, and he went into the Starbucks in New York City last week, and for fun, he just told them, they said, what's your name? And he says, Spartacus. (laughs) So when they called his name, uh, they said, Spartacus, and he said, I am Spartacus. (laughs) And over in the corner, an older man stood up and goes, no, I am Spartacus. And then one by one, every man in that particular Starbucks stood up and said, no, I am Spartacus. What we need is people to stand up and say, I am Spartacus. I am Amen. (laughs) What would happen? What would happen if instead of Spartacus, we stood up for Jesus like that? What would happen? 
if we became world changers? What would happen if we determined we would influence every square inch of the space we occupy on planet Earth until he returns in power and great glory? What would happen if people would rise up in the power and the spirit of the living God? What would happen if people would, under the anointing of God himself, what would happen if we would be that people? I believe God has called us to be that people. I find no explanation to be where we are in less than two years, other than God has a purpose and a plan for this, this church called influence. You know, the Bible says in the book of Isaiah chapter 10 and verse 27, it shall come to pass in that day that his burden will be taken away from your shoulder and his yoke from your neck and because, and the yoke will be destroyed because of the anointing oil. Right now, I want you to take the burden that you have. I want you to give it to God. And in its place, I want you to ask God to bring the anointing on your life. I want you to ask God to bring power on your life. God, I'm open for you. I've done all I can do in my strength. And God, now all I can do is await you, wait your presence. I, I've told this story before, but I want to tell it because the context makes it so powerful. It's been over two years ago now that I was, uh, it was March of 2011, I was sitting in an office with a guy by the name of Caviezel. He, he played Jesus in the Passion of the Christ. And as I sat there in that, in that time waiting for him to go on and speak, I, I was just amazed at his commitment to Christ. And honestly, it was more commitment than I'd seen ever maybe in my life. His passion was so strong and so rich and so great. And as I sat there across from him, I, I, I just heard the voice of the Spirit of God in my heart say, are you that committed? And I had to admit, I'm not. God, I admit I'm not that committed. I see what he's endured. I see what he did. I saw the stand he took. He gave up his entire career. He gave up everything to serve as Jesus in that movie. And I, I just, I'm not that committed, God, but I want to be that committed. And I can still remember what I felt and what I experienced on that day. As I sat there looking across from him, I felt it seemed like a wave come across me. It seemed like a power come across me. Call it an anointing. Call it whatever you want, the presence of God. But it pushed me from the right to the left. And I stood there knowing that something had changed. There was no other physical manifestation. There was no other change, but I knew something had changed, and it was the step that God was taking to move me to that next level of what he wanted me to do. Little did I know what it was going to be. I do know that in the anointing, you, you have to be committed to pursuing God's purpose for your life. You have to say, first and foremost, I will pursue God's purpose for my life, not my plan for my life. You have to also understand that when the anointing comes, it comes in stages, that God prepares you, see if you're faithful, and then he gives you more and more of his power, more and more of his presence. And it's always for a very specific task. It's not without purpose. It's not aimless. It's not set aside for something other than just what God is up to in your life. A famous evangelist in the 1800s by the name of Charles Finney, trained as an attorney, the pastor had told them to quit praying for Charles. He was too far gone, too rebellious against God. 
He went out into the woods to pray, and he records later his conversion and what the experience he had in these words. The Holy Spirit descended on me with a manner that seemed to go through me, body and soul. I could feel the impression like a wave of electricity going through me and through me. Indeed, it seemed like it came in waves of liquid love, for I could not express it in any other way. It seemed like the very breath of God. I can remember distinctly that it, was, it seemed to fan me like an immense wing. No words can express the wonderful love that was spread abroad in my heart. That was his experience, not yours, not mine. That was his. But all of us need to experience the presence of God in our life. We need to be able to go back to a point and say it was there then that I met God in a new and powerful way, never being satisfied with that, but knowing there's a line of demarcation where you say, enough of me is enough. I need God. I need the power and the presence of God in my life. Also, I want you to see that dream killers are everywhere. Everybody tried to kill David's dream. People are trying to kill your dream. They're trying to extinguish what God is doing in your life. In 1 Samuel 17, verses 28 and 29, it says, Now uh, Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was aroused against David. And he said, Why did you come down here? Why are you messing up our defeat? My commentary. And with whom have you left, notice, those few sheep? He didn't have many, he just had a few. I know your pride, I know your in, the insolence of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. You just want to, you just want to Google eye and, and rubberneck, you just want to watch what's going on here. And David said, what have I done now? That little phrase is telling this wasn't the first time he'd been ridiculed by a brother or someone else. This wasn't the first time that someone had accused him of doing something like this. And then he says, is there not a cause? There's a cause before you, and all you're worried about is me showing up at the battle? Here's some principles that I want you to remember. Dream killers do not want you to succeed. Their dream has already died. They don't want your dream to live. So they'll do everything they can to keep you down. What is the dream God put in your heart? Write it down. Put it before God. Pray it out and wait on the Lord. Trust God for the dream he wants to do. And stay away from the dream killers. Someone's a dream killer in your life? Move quickly. Avoid them like a plague. Because it won't be long, they'll kill your dream too. They're never satisfied until everyone's dream is dead. Also, dream killers resort to ridicule. Really? Are you sure? Are you sure God told you that? Are you sure God is able to do that? And they start by ridiculing you. Dream killers belittle your efforts. You make a little progress, it feels like great progress, and someone says, well, that's all the further you've got. Well, you're never going to get there at that rate. Don't listen to the dream colors. You see, you don't, they'll say, you don't deserve God's best. You know what you say? That's true, but I serve a God of mercy. I serve a God of mercy. 
You ought to say that often to yourself. When you feel like your dream's falling apart, your life falling apart, and you hear the enemy saying in, your, in that little voice in your heart, you know, you don't deserve this. Just agree. Yeah, you're right. I don't deserve it. But God is a God of mercy. You see, God never forgets about the dream he put in your heart. God put it there for a reason, and God never forgets about it. So don't give up on your dream. God has more than one way to fulfill his plan for your life. Your past does not disqualify you for God's best. I have a GPS in my car that I never use. I have one on my phone. I'll put it in, and I'll, it'll tell me which way to go, and I rarely believe it's right. Are you like that? I know better than this car knows. I know better than this phone. And I'll take on another route, and I'll be going down a road, and it'll, then it'll come back on, and what will it say? Rerouting. Rerouting, turn around, make a U-turn, and I ignore it, and I just keep going. I know where I'm going. And I'll hear rerouting four or five times in every drive that I take. I want you to know that that's how it is with you and with how it is with me. You see, when we go down a road... God will reroute you. He will compensate for your mistake because he's going to get you to the place he wants you to be. And sometimes it takes a little bit longer because he has to adjust to your mistake. But your destination is secured by God. Amen? If you'll listen to the voice of the Spirit of God, God will take you down the right road. Every time you say, no, God, that's not the right way, he will reroute you. He'll get you back on track, but you've wasted precious time. Third thing I want you to see is you have to stare down the giants in your life. I told the men at our men's Bible study, had over 100 men on, on our Monday night Bible study last week. It was awesome to see all the guys there and to hang out. I told them the story of Billy Kneff. Billy Kneff, I was in third or fourth grade, Billy was in seventh grade, and he was already shaving. He really was shaving, I promise. And he was a giant of a man, a colossal of a man. Uh, I think he could beat up my dad. And Billy Kneff was always picking on me. He was the bully in the neighborhood. And uh, one day I'd had all I could take. Billy stood about six foot two, weighed about 300 pounds. And I'm not exaggerating. Billy was a colossal man. Have I said this enough? You understand what I'm saying? I'd had enough. And I said to Billy, I will meet you in my front yard tomorrow at 2 o'clock for a fight. I figured it better in my yard. That way my mom could come out and rescue me if things got really bad. <laughs> well, sure enough, Billy showed up. I was praying. He'd go, God, don't let Billy show up. What was I thinking? I was the stupidest guy in the world. And Billy was there. He stood there. He says, well, come on. With all of my strength, I rushed him like a bull, head down, my plan was to hit that big belly, knock him down, get him down, put him in a headlock, and have him cry uncle. I hit him, bounced to the ground. <laughs> Billy collapsed himself on me, put his knees right on my shoulders, took my finger, and began to bend it back and say, I'm sorry, Uncle Billy. Being a tenacious man, a man of courage, I looked him in the eye and said, I'm sorry, Uncle Billy. <laughs> I learned something, though. I learned to not avoid a giant. I don't care what it costs you, you don't avoid a giant. You stand true to your convictions. And even if you get knocked to the ground, and even if your fingers get bent back, you stare down the giants in your life because they will come in full force if you don't. 
Look what it says in 1 Samuel 17, 32. Then David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. That is Goliath. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you're not able to go against the Philistine to fight with him for you are youth and he is a man of war from his youth. Chapter 17, verse 45 and 46. Then David said to the Philistine, now imagine, here's David, the 16, 17-year-old. It's like Phil on steroids and Goliath. And he says, you come to me with a sword and with a spear, with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. When Satan comes to you and he says, you're not worthy, you'll never do that. You say, you come to me, that's all you got? Are you kidding me? That's all you got? Look what David says, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel. Whom you have defiled. Say that to Satan. You come to me with that? That's all you've got is trying to bring up something in my past that I did, I messed up on? That's all you've got? Bringing up my lack of ability, my lack of connection, my lack of education? That's all you've got? I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts and you defy the armies of the Most High God by coming against his son? His daughter? That's all you've got? This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you and take your head from you. He laughed. He laughed. You see, you have to be determined in life. If you live passively, life will pass you by and not care. You have to stare down the giants in your life. The problems you run from will get bigger. They'll get smaller if you face them. Run toward the giant and rely on God. Charge the giant because there's more on their way. You know why David picked up five stones? Because Goliath had four brothers. The Bible tells us in 2 Samuel chapter 21, beginning at verse 15, that he had four brothers. They were killed by other of David's men. Once they saw it could be done, they said, well, I believe we can do this. He picked up five stones not knowing. He only needed one. And then what did he do? He was not content to kill the giant. Once the giant had fallen and was dead, what did he do? He went over and cut the giant's head off. And he took it with him. I want you to know, the giants will live in your life until you cut their head off. You have to give up the nerve center. You have to give up the computer. You have to give up all that stuff that's bringing you down if you're ever going to have victory. And that head became the trophy of a, conquered, of a conquered giant in his life. You see, giants grow bigger over time. I'm convinced that giants are like goldfish. They're going to grow to the size tank you put them in. And if you give the giants in your life a great big tank, they're going to get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger until you stop and say, enough is enough. I'm cutting the head off. You're done in the name of Jesus. But you grow weaker without battles. In fact, battles are designed to make warriors. Most of the heroes that become heroes become heroes in battle, and they were never heroes before. But something activated inside them in the middle of the battle, and they said, wait a minute, I can do this. There is a cause. I'm going to take control of this situation. And nothing is harder in your life than a life of ease. You want to kill yourself? 
Little by little, you live an easy life. You avoid battles. You don't make any waves. You just sit back and go, I just want to get along with everybody. Oh, that gives me a pain I can't locate. <laughs> you think Jesus had that mentality? Everybody was mad at him except the, it says the common people heard him gladly, but all the religious, what, what's he doing? Making a, he's messing up our religion. Everything he did caused a wave. We need mighty men, valiant men. We need men who hate, hate sin and love God. Men who are wanting to do great exploits for the kingdom of God. Men who will sacrifice for the cause by lifting up Jesus. And when men start rising up like that, women will follow, children will follow. I'm going to ask every man in this room to stand up right now. I'm going to pray for you. Would you just stand up where you're seated? Every man in this building right now. I want you just to bow your head and reach your hand forward. And just pray a prayer like this one. Dear Lord Jesus, I commit myself to be a man of God. My sins will not keep me from pursuing you. The lies of the enemy will not prevent me from following you. Fill me with your spirit right now. Anoint me with power right now. Let me be a man of influence wherever I go. In the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Now would everyone stand together? Let's just pray. And as we pray, our band's going to come and lead us in a song. But Father, I just want to pray for every person here, God, that all of us would experience a mighty power uh, from on high. God, that we would, we would be filled with your spirit. God, that our eyes would be sensitive to the things of God. God, I pray right now there's an overwhelming just... Uh, a spirit of sacrifice that comes. I'm going to give up my will so that I can know the will of God. I'm going to give up my desires so that I can live in the power of the Spirit of God. God, I don't want to be just like every other Christian. I don't want to go through the motions. I don't want church to be like some country club. God, I, I want it to be like a battlefield where we're out there and we're seeing souls saved, where we're seeing lives changed and families brought together and our communities are transformed by your power. Lord Jesus, we give you our, our, our self completely right now. We give you everything we have, Lord. And we ask you, God, to move in our midst right now as we sing this song and we give you praise and we give you glory unto Jesus.